Hello, welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm Mary Mate. How are you, Katie? I'm good, you? I'm great. And a reminder that uh, if you want to support us and get bonus content, go to usefulidiots.substack.com. Yeah, it's a great thing to do. And if you are uh, watching this on Rumble, you can go to usefulidiots.locals.com. So either place gives you great uh, exclusive content, which includes our amazing, if I do say so myself, very, very popular feature, Thursday Throwdown, which is your midweek dose of media madness. So much madness in the Thursday Throwdown. And you also can catch it at Friendster.com. And MySpace. And MySpace, yeah. Yeah. All righty. Well, should we get to our four basic food groups? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So this week for Democrats suck. The big news of this week, or you know, a big news item of this week, is the meeting in Moscow between President Xi of China and President Putin of Russia. And the U.S. sees a major threat coming out of that meeting, and that is the possibility of a call for a ceasefire in Ukraine. Heaven forbid that that should ever be allowed to happen. So here is, first of all, supposedly a guy who's supposed, who's supposed to be a diplomat. That's his job title, Anthony Blinken who doesn't seem very interested in diplomacy, uh, speaking about the prospect of a ceasefire inside Ukraine. And a ceasefire now, without a durable solution, would allow President Putin to rest and refit his troops and then restart the war at a time more advantageous to Russia. The world should not be fooled by any tactical move by Russia, uh, supported by China or any other country, to freeze the war on its own terms. Such a move would violate the UN Charter and delay, uh, defy, excuse me, the will of 141 countries who have condemned Russia's war in the United Nations General Assembly. A little Freudian slip there with delay, huh? Yeah, and also a new novel legal concept, according to Antony Blinken, that somehow a ceasefire would violate the UN Charter. So according to Blinken, ceasefires are illegal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're you know, war crimes. Yeah, but in in a world where Blinken can call himself a diplomat, I guess it makes sense for right. him to also declare that peace is illegal because he his job is to be his job function right now is warmongering. That's all he does, right. not diplomacy. So for him to call himself a diplomat while doing that, I guess it's consistent to also declare that peace would be illegal. Yeah, because it's not opposite day. Well, <laughs> I guess it is opposite day every day in the state in the. Uh, State Department. But uh, another person who agrees with uh, Anthony Blinken, just to reinforce that this is a Biden administration policy, is John Kirby. He is a spokesperson for the National Security Council. And this week on Monday morning, we already played his clip from Fox News where he said that a ceasefire would be unacceptable. Well, here is Kirby uh, relaying the same message to CNN. We've been very, very uh, public about any concerns uh, about some sort of a ceasefire announcement right now. We all want to see peace. We all want to see this war end. It could end today if Mr. Putin did the right thing. But a ceasefire called right now would basically just ratify Russia's conquest and give Mr. Putin more time to re-equip and uh, retrain and, uh, and restart operations at a time and a place of his choosing. So if they call for a ceasefire, you believe Ukraine should and will reject that? Yes, we do. And we would uh, reject it as well. We think that that's an unacceptable outcome right now. Uh, obviously, we want the fighting to stop. We want the war to be over. And as I said, it could end today if Mr. Putin would do the right thing. But to call for a ceasefire right now basically ratifies what they've been able to grab inside Ukraine and gives them time and space uh, to prepare for future operations. And that's just not going to be acceptable. 
So there we go. So ceasefire is unacceptable. And also, what happened to the policy of leaving Ukraine's decisions up to the Ukrainians? So whenever the U.S. faces calls to help promote diplomacy, they always say, no, that's up to the Ukrainians. It's right. not up for us to dictate. As soon as there's the, uh, there's the possibility of a ceasefire, they say that's unacceptable. Right. And whether or not Ukraine would oppose it, they say that we're against it. Yes. You know? Right. So There's one sudden, thing that trumps Ukrainian sovereignty, and that is the drive for war. Exactly. Exactly. So we only respect Ukraine's sovereignty if we can invoke that to oppose diplomacy. When diplomacy right. is a possibility, Ukrainian sovereignty doesn't matter. It's unacceptable no matter what. So unbelievable. <laughs> it's so disgusting. Just how blatantly they're weaponizing Ukrainian sovereignty and the lives of Ukrainians hiding behind it to pretend that this is about their self-determination and their rights, except for when it literally comes to stopping the war, at which point it's all about what the United States deems acceptable. So here's a former colleague of uh, Antony Blinken uh, from the Obama administration named Jeremy Shapiro pointing out, I don't know, how odd it is that the U.S.'s top diplomat is so hostile to diplomacy. This is what Jeremy Shapiro said. I'm a little confused as to why the diplomatic arm of the U.S. is one of the least interested parts of the government in diplomacy, said Jeremy Shapiro. He was speaking to uh, the Washington Post. And yes, Jeremy Shapiro served in the Obama White House. Yes, <laughs> it's strange. The Pentagon is more supportive of diplomacy in Ukraine than the State Department is. You know, as we've talked about a lot, General Mark Milley, who's the top U.S. military officer, he's called for negotiations for months. But unfortunately, the person whose job that is to push negotiations, Anthony Blinken, doesn't feel the same way. Just unbelievable. <laughs> Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. All right. What do we have for Republicans suck? Really disgusting. So for Republicans suck, uh, we have a story about uh, Wyoming, which has done some pretty uh, impressive things. Let's uh, go to the videotape. Here in the U.S., a group of Republicans in South Carolina State House have proposed legislation to making to make getting an abortion punishable by the death penalty. The measure would amend the state's code of laws to grant zygotes, or fertilized eggs, quote, equal protection under the homicide laws of the state. The bill has gathered the support of nearly two dozen South Carolina House Republicans who now co-sponsor it. Meanwhile, in Texas, a man has filed a wrongful death lawsuit against three women he accuses of illegally assisting his ex-wife and having a medication abortion. Texas's abortion law allows private citizens to file civil suits against abortion providers or anyone who aids or abets an abortion after six weeks. And that's not all there is in Republican abortion news. Also in Wyoming, they became the first state to ban the use of abortion pills, which is the most popular method for terminating pregnancies. And that law goes into effect in July, and it makes it a felony to prescribe, sell, and use abortion medication, which is punishable with six months in prison. 
Also in Wyoming, the so-called Life is a Human Right Act went into effect already on Sunday, and that prohibits abortion under most circumstances, and that is punishable uh, with up to five years in prison. So lots of abortion news. And of course, I think the most shocking piece of it is the death penalty, the call for the death penalty for people who have abortions. And that is not really the most pro-life position you can have. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, isn't it still called the pro-life movement? Well, I've never, I mean, yeah, they try to call it that. And I've yeah, always said, if you if you want to yeah. call yourself pro-life, you better be at least uh, anti-death penalty as well. If not, you're just anti-abortion or anti-choice. Yeah. Well, they're certainly flouting that there. And that is unbelievable. Yeah. That's unbelievable. actually, does it have a chance of passing? I, I don't know. I mean, I used to say like, n- no, stuff like that would never have a chance of passing. But honestly, who knows? So shout out to South Carolina. It's not just one person, you know, it's a bunch of them, House Republicans, and they've co-sponsored it. It's really crazy. Yeah. So they really believe in the sanctity of life. Yeah. There's so much so they're willing to uh, impose death. Right. On on young women. I mean, that, that is a, that is insane. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm speechless at that. Um, okay. First, isn't that weird? We're going to slightly shift gears here and go to Broadway where there is a, uh, a major scandal unfolding uh, where recently, and apparently this is not an isolated incident, uh, but this happened to get news because Hillary Clinton and Chelsea Clinton were in attendance at a Broadway show where a fan reportedly defecated in the aisle. And this is the headline from the New York Post. Uh, okay. Fan no. poops in aisle near Hillary and Chelsea Clinton at Broadway show. I don't know if we need to read the details here. I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Apparently somebody defecated in the aisle at a Broadway show where Chelsea Clinton and Hillary Clinton were attending. I got to say, if somebody had to do it, if there had to be a uh, pooping perpetrator, if you will, I can't hate on the timing of doing it when Hillary Clinton and Chelsea Clinton are there, given all the misery that Hillary... I mean, I can't blame Chelsea for this, but Hillary right. has inflicted on the world. I mean, so, you know, hey, if, if, if it had to be done... Fair enough. I'd say do it in Hillary Clinton's presence. I'm, just, you know, yeah. And also, I do think what makes it extra unfortunate is the fact that the show that they were seeing is called "Some Like It Hot." <laughs> oh man, yeah, yeah. Well, the obvious there's obvious jokes to be made there. Yeah. But yeah. In fact, the New York Post does it in their first line. They say "Some Like It." Dot dot dot. Steaming hot. Right. Great job. Great work there. Yeah. It is. So, guys, be careful if you go to the Schubert Theater, Schubert Theater, because apparently this is, uh, as Aaron said, it's not an isolated incident. There's a serial pooper. All right. Uh, what do we have for Isn't That Terrible? So, for Isn't That Terrible, we have a story, uh, not surprisingly, brought to us by The Mirror. Um, great news source for stories like this. Bungling surgeon amputates patient's penis by mistake over non-existent tumor. A 30-year-old surgeon mistakenly amputated a patient's penis after incorrectly diagnosing him with a non-existent tumor in Arezzo, Italy. The bungling urologist is currently under investigation. That is pretty horrible. Yeah, that is not going to encourage uh, people to trust uh, medicine. Right. Um, that is just awful. That is truly terrible. Every time there's a penis item on the show, it's, it's terrible. It's it never really going to be good news. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. We have yeah. 100% consistency in giving you terrible penis stories. 
Right. It's never going to be an isn't that great or isn't that yeah. inspiring. Yeah. I remember what I can't remember what it was now, but there was one we did that made me feel physically ill. And this one is doing the trick as well. So thanks for that, Katie. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. Oh, it's just terrible. I guess it's like the good news is you don't have cancer. The bad news is you don't have a penis. Oh, awful. Oh, all right. Truly wow. terrible. Truly terrible. Truly terrible. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, I'm speechless at that one. Well, luckily, it's not all terrible news this week because we have a great interview for you. So for this week's guest, we have Michael Tracy, independent journalist who writes at mtracy.substack.com. And we are going to talk to him about this arrest warrant that has been issued by the International Criminal Court for Vladimir Putin, about the controversy over Ron DeSantis' comments about Ukraine, and about uh, the frenzy over TikTok with a congressional hearing going on. And a lot of lawmakers are seeking to shut down TikTok for good in the U.S. And make sure you become subscribers at usefulidiots.substack.com or usefulidiots.locals.com because you'll be able to hear the full interview with Michael and we get into some really interesting, important stuff and some great clips. All right, let's go to Michael Tracy. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. My pleasure. So we want to start off by asking you about uh, recent news where the International Criminal Court, the ICC, has issued an arrest warrant for Putin. And here we have a clip of Senator Lindsey Graham asking Secretary of State Antony Blinken about this. Are you familiar with the ICC arrest warrant being uh, that was uh, issued against Putin? Yes. Do you think that's sound? I think we've all seen, Senator, the atrocities and uh, war crimes committed yeah. uh, in Ukraine. Uh, and um, we all we believe strongly, as we said, I think the president said he thought that was a, a there, sound need, there needs to be accountability. Yeah. And the ICC is uh, what do they want to arrest him for? The focus of the as I understand it, the focus is on the uh, in effect abduction of children right. from uh, Ukraine, taking them to Russia, giving them to. Yeah. Uh, so to let's Russia's just stop for a second. He's being uh, there's an arrest warrant for Putin hmm. by the ICC. Hmm for kidnapping children in Ukraine and taking to Russia. Is That's that right. pretty much it, right? Yep. Uh, if Putin came to the United States for whatever reason, would we turn him over to the ICC? Well, I can't get ahead of that because obviously I have to look at the uh, the laws and rules. As you know, we're not actually a party uh, to the yeah. ICC, so I don't want to engage in that in that hypothetical. But I, I would encourage you that if you <laughs> if he came here, we should turn him over. Now, I don't think he has any plans to travel here soon. Yeah. Well, would you encourage our European allies to turn him over? I, I think that anyone who is a uh, party to the court yeah. uh, and has obligations yeah. Uh, yeah. should uh, fulfill their obligations. What are your thoughts on that clip, Michael? Well, my initial thought was that the next time Putin takes a spontaneous holiday to the French Riviera, he better watch out <laughs> because the cops are going to be banging on his door. You know, it's, it's interesting because there's some political craftiness going on here and how the U.S. has spoken about this ICC arrest warrant. The first comment or one of the very first comments Biden made on the day that it was issued on the 17th, Biden went out of his way to note that the United States is not party to the International Criminal Court, which is technically true, but he didn't really elaborate any further. And if he had elaborated, he might have let everyone know that 
despite the fact that the United States is not an official member of the International Criminal Court, it still is deeply engaged in criminal proceedings associated with the International Criminal Court, especially as it relates to prosecutions involving Ukraine. And in fact, the Congress enacted provisions that modified the restrictions that would have otherwise been in place on U.S. government officials or U.S. government agencies in participating in ICC activity. Because remember, in 2002, uh, under George W. Bush, there was legislation passed that was then colloquially referred to as the Hague Invasion Act. That actually wasn't the, the name. It was the America Service Members Protection Act, if I'm remembering correctly. Something kind of really generic and patriotic with a you know snappy acron- acronym that forbid any American government officials from having any relations at all with the International Criminal Court because the United States was expressly rejecting that the ICC had any jurisdiction over any American nationals, with the idea being that the Afghanistan war had just been launched and there could be some potential that maybe American military members could be indicted or arrested by the International Criminal Court. But over time, actually initially at the behest primarily of Condoleezza Rice, Congress brought forward certain alterations to that sort of legislative status quo and allowed for narrow circumstances in which the U.S. could actually partake in ICC proceedings. And if you go and look at the statute that's still on the books, among the exceptions that they mentioned as potentially allowing for U.S. involvement in these international prosecutorial efforts are prosecutions related to Osama bin Laden, Saddam Hussein, Slobodan Milosevic, various other jihadist groups, Al-Qaeda, and then most recently, after all these years, they decided to slap right onto that list Vladimir Putin, um, or what they actually said was more specifically, any crimes that arise from events in the, what they said was the situation in Ukraine. So anything that's even tangentially Ukraine related now also qualifies as the exception that enables U.S. officials to participate in international tribunals and even specifically the International Criminal Court. So the U.S. has at least two primary vehicles through which they've engaged in the International Criminal Court proceedings by provisioning uh, intelligence or other sorts of support. Or I mean, it's, not, it's not exactly clear. They don't, they don't give the full details as to what this involvement is, but we know it's it exists and it's rather extensive. There's one route through the Justice Department. Merrick Garland was himself in Lviv a few weeks ago for this sort of consortium conference of uh, European and other uh, justice ministers and so forth, where he pledged the United States was changing its longstanding attitude toward the International Criminal Court and toward other sort of international international tribunals, and actually moving forward based on Congress Congress's authorization in participating as an, as an active sort of collaborator in the bring about of these prosecutions, and also through the State Department is another route that they've set up through this sort of special you know subset. I mean, there's so many random undersecretaries and so forth at the State Department, it's impossible to keep track of them. But one of them is sort of presiding over these sort of accountability initiatives. 
And so they have, you know, forensic investigators on the ground. They're interviewing witnesses. They're borrowing from all kinds of different legal entities and legal groupings to basically, at the end of the day, ensure that there are criminal charges brought against Vladimir Putin and then he's arrested and imprisoned. Um, so, So this was the first step in doing that. But what is the impression that you got if you were just like a sort of a casual news consumer and you weren't that familiar with the intricacies of the International Criminal Court or like the recent legislative developments and you're not, in other words, you're not like a nut like me where you read like national defense authorization bills. Well, you would just think, oh, wow, gee, um, the U.S. isn't even a member of this court, isn't party to it. So there must have just been this neutral, objective fact-finding endeavor where this other entity that doesn't have any sort of political investment decided on its own just by happenstance that Putin is guilty of uh, grievous war crimes. So that sort of enhances maybe the credibility in the public mind of the legitimacy of that chart, when in reality, the U.S. has been engineering it, but in a less visible way, perhaps. Yeah. And, and one example that, that you pointed out of the, of the possible hidden hand of the U.S. in this ICC indictment is the allegation about this mass child abduction program by Russia uh, that Putin is accused of being complicit in. And you pointed out, and let's show the tweet, uh, that the main source of this uh, that's been put out publicly is a Yale study with the involvement of the State Department. So there's the cover for this report. And then going to the other screenshot, the insert of this report, you see this. This report is the result of an investigation by the Yale School of Public Health Humanitarian Research Lab, a member of Conflict Observatory, which is a project of the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations. And I love that. Stabilization operations. Yes, yes. Sounds like a real treat to be yeah. privy to that operation. And one thing you also point out is that none of the researchers on this report actually went to Ukraine. Well, I mean, they gave their own methodological disclosures in the report itself. I guess maybe to their credit, I would have been maybe embarrassed to make this disclosure, um, especially if the report could theoretically be used as the basis for an actual uh, criminal prosecution, um, which there's no explicit connection drawn there. But if you go through the report, they single out Putin individually as culpable for certain, you know, specifically decipherable legal offenses under various international law provisions, whether it's like, you know, the Rome statute or Geneva Convention or or what have you. But they single out Putin and then the woman who is the chief of this, you know, child services uh, department or whatever in, in Russia, they're the two main culprits who are singled out in the report. And then there's like a legal theory presented as to how they bear responsibility legally. And then sure enough, in the ICC indictment that came out um, only a few days after, or at least it was submitted for approval by the ICC judges only a few days after the publication of the State Department report in February, um, it sort of almost perfectly mirrors in its structure and its sort of legal logic the case that's presented in this State Department report. So it stands to reason, given that, you know, it's not hidden, actually, that the State Department and the Department of Justice are engaged in this. I mean, they're they're open about it. It's not like something that they're actively concealing. So it doesn't even require speculation, right? I mean, I, pu- I pulled up in that same thread a tweet from 
this woman, Beth Van Schack, who's an, uh, a State Department operative who presides over something called the criminal just, Global Criminal Justice Unit of the State Department. And she's given you know plenty of public statements in all kinds of venues corroborating this. So has Merrick Garland, so have other officials. So again, it's not like something that is a matter of speculation. It's factually established. And so for the sort of thrust of the indictment to almost per- perfectly echo the thrust of the State Department report, I think, you know, at least stands to reason that it's a plausible possibility that there could have been some sort of connection there. But either way, if you read the methodological disclosures in that Yale report, the idea that it substantiates anything beyond anything close to like a reasonable doubt threshold is insane. They go out of their way to disclose that they rely proudly. They think this is some kind of innovation, that they rely exclusively on open source data. So they're like in this OSINT crowd. Yes. And I should correct myself. It's possible they went to Ukraine, but as you point out, they disclose that they do not interview any alleged witnesses or victims and are relying entirely on what they call open source data. Like Right. And didn't seek to visit one of the camps in question where the atrocities supposedly were based. Um, and, and you also pointed out that the timing of this arrest happened to come right before Xi Jinping went to Moscow to meet with with Putin. And after he did, the indictment was used uh, publicly by people opposed to any kind of China-Russia uh, meeting uh, as as evidence that Xi Jinping is complicit with Putin in these alleged war crimes. Yeah, I mean, immediately when the indictment came down, you saw members of Congress um, and so on warning Xi Jinping that if he chooses to proceed with his planned visit to Moscow, that's going to make him complicit in Putin's war crimes. It's going to make him an, a better of a war criminal. So he better think twice because that's going to you know, follow him around for the rest of time or something with this guilt by association theory. And then on the very day that she, she arrived in Moscow, Blinken himself again went out and made a public statement basically re- reiterating this very point that uh, she is giving diplomatic cover to an accused war criminal and the, our minds are focused on that with respect to Putin because of this latest international criminal court indictment, which of course the United States had nothing to do with because it's not a member, but nonetheless, it's like coloring the political um, interpretation of lots of key events. So, Also, what what is problematic about um, open source documents, OSINT? Because I think that people just hearing that probably think that's a good thing, right? I don't think there's anything intrinsically problematic about it. I, but there is like this whole cottage industry now of like self-professed experts who kind of purport to have this very savvy and an impressive OSINT methodology to gather data. And they think that it should like supplant in its primacy people who do, you know, journalism. So, I mean, there was an onslaught against Seymour Hirsch from the, these OSINT types right. uh, claiming that they were able to, you know, debunk him because they, you know, geolocated something or other in the Baltic Sea with like some Norwegian vessel. And, you know, it's just um, some there are uses for it. Uh, I, I'm not going to, you know, discount the utility of the uh mode of inquiry entirely. Um, but it, it is something that you do see more and more being emphasized by these kind of think tank security studies, institutions, quasi-academic 
um, where there's like this burgeoning field or you know expertise or claimed expertise in OSINT as it relates to like national security issues is seen as like a really desirable um, skill set to have now, and it'll show you it'll like you know, lead you to opportunities to you know further master the national security skills that you need to use to you know keep everyone safe. Staying on the topic of Ukraine, Michael, you recently unearthed some really interesting clips of uh, Chris Murphy, Senator Chris Murphy, speaking back in 2014 about the events that happened there. And, you know, people like myself refer to what happened in Ukraine as a coup. Other people call it a democratic revolution. Uh, Chris Murphy took a lot of credit <laughs> for the events and seemed to bolster, I think, uh, those of us who think that this was a coup. So this was him taking calls on C-SPAN back in 2014. Let's go to the first clip. So what is the best way the U.S. can help in this situation? Well, I, I think the United States strong voice in support of the peaceful protest movement um, is a big part of the story as to why there is an opportunity now uh, for the Ukrainian people to get what they want. Early on, the United States said that um, that peace should be observed in that square. We came down hard on Yanukovych when he violated uh, that piece when he sent uh, his forces into the square repeatedly to clear it, ultimately over the course of the last week, resulting in dozens of people killed. Uh, and I think it was our role, including sanctions and threats of sanctions that forced in part Yanukovych from office. Now, uh, the question is, what can we do to support this new government? There's going to be a lot of talk about an assistance package. That's something you don't hear very often, which is uh, a powerful U.S. political figure bragging that we played a key role in forcing out the Ukrainian president. But it's a point that, you know, critics of U.S. policy often make. Uh, and it's very, very instructive. It's very revealing, very edifying to hear Chris Murphy admit that back when it was happening. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I squealed with glee when I came across <laughs> that C-SPAN call in episode as I was in like a manic haze going through the 2014 C-SPAN.org archive. But every now and then you Always land on something time. that's really, uh, really sort of makes you glad to be alive. The best part of that, I think, performance is that it's at a period in February of 2014 when Chris Murphy probably wouldn't have had any awareness that anything that he was saying was going to be politically fraught. So remember, he went to Ukraine with McCain a few months prior to address the rally on the, the Maidan. And he was thinking of it and talking about it more in terms of just this sort of innocuous bipartisanship initiative with, you know, this line of the Senate John McCain to spread American goodwill around. I'm actually not sure or I'm uncertain, genuinely, if Chris Murphy had any kind of bona fide ideological investment in the issue of Ukraine at that point, or if it was just something that he latched onto because he happened to be on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. <laughs> and as he says elsewhere in that C-SPAN appearance, it just happens to be the case that Connecticut, the, the state he represents, ha has an unusually high share of its trade with the European Union. And mm -hmm. so for him, and he says this bluntly, and you almost have to admire it. He said his one of his chief motives, like he gave no real ideological motive, but he did give it just a raw economic motive, which is that if Ukraine were to join the EU through the trade deal that was pending at the time, it would simply increase the revenues of Connecticut and put more money in the state coffers. I mean, pretty simple stuff, right? Bringing home the bacon. 
Well, I really don't think that this is a proxy fight between the United States and Russia. I know a lot of people want to make this into sort of the new chapter in a new Cold War, but it's not. This is really about supporting one of the biggest, most important countries in the Eurasian region, um, be able to determine for themselves what their future is. Uh, and it looks to people like this is the United States and Russia once again uh, fighting, maybe not in military terms, but on economic terms uh, in uh, a country that we both care about. But really, ultimately, I think this is about us supporting the wishes of y Ukraine. And, um, you know, the, the there is a U.S. interest uh, here. We are in the middle of negotiating a new trade agreement with Europe. Um, to my state, it's enormously important. We do 40 percent of our trade in Connecticut with Europe. Um, if Ukraine is part of the European Union um, and thus is part of this new trade agreement with the United States, that could result in billions of dollars in new economic opportunities for the U.S. So we do have an economic interest in the Ukraine being part of the European Union, and we shouldn't be shy about um, making clear that interest. When, with he, him being forthright about the decisive role, or at least the very um, influential role, maybe even uh, decisive role, that the United States played in ousting Yanukovych from power, when he talks about that, he's just sort of talking about it as though he's recounting just an average day's work and it wouldn't have any particularly noteworthy political content. Like he, It wouldn't have been obvious to him that it could be situated into a partisan framing at that time or that it could be used later as some sort of a accusatory thing. Um, so that's an irony because if today somebody who was just on the internet and not a U.S. senator, if they uttered the same exact words that Murphy did in these clips to describe U.S. conduct in the events of February 2014 in, in Kyiv, They'd be accused, of, be accused of being a Russian propagandist. Yes. Well, listen, Michael, speaking of which, here is one that you, you found. This is great, where he says that the U.S. helped lead to this change in regime, which is yeah. known in short as regime change. I, I don't I will admit to you that I have not been involved as involved in what's happening in Venezuela um, over the last week because I've been focused as the chairman of the Europe subcommittee on Ukraine. But um, I, with respect to Ukraine, we have not sat on the sidelines. We have been um, very much involved, uh, you know, members of the Senate who have been there, members of the State Department who have been on the square, the administration, the Obama administration passed sanctions. Uh, the Senate uh, was prepared to pass its own set of sanctions. And as I said, I really think that the uh, clear position of the United States has in part been what has helped lead to this change in uh, regime. So um, I know that there is merit in the claim that um, the United States sort of has these principles and then we selectively apply them. We get involved in certain places and then we don't get involved in other places. But um, I think if ultimately this is a peaceful transition to a new government in Ukraine, it'll be the United States on the streets of Ukraine who will be seen as a great friend in helping make that transition happen. He was right. They renamed a street in Kiev right near the Maidan Square after John McCain. Wow. So Murphy was go. absolutely correct in his prediction. I mean, it wasn't peaceful at all, though. Uh, it was a violent uh, mob that helped oust the government that forced Yanukovych to flee because after they, I mean, it's a long story, but after they made an agreement to have a power share, sharing agreement, the hardcore elements of the Maidan protests, you know, right. right sector and so forth, they didn't want to have any kind of power sharing. And that led to violence. And at that point, 
Yanukovych's forces had kind of dissipated. And so he had no one left to protect him. He fled. So the peaceful transition that Murphy was going for uh, didn't happen. But what did happen was the change in regime that he that he, he took credit for. In that well, clip. elsewhere in that C-SPAN appearance, and I didn't make this into a clip because I was I had like 12 clips at that point. So I had to, you know, yeah. be a little bit circumspect in what I was going to blast out there. People should watch the whole thing if they'd like. But at one point, Murphy says that he had a two-hour meeting, presumably with McCain, with Yanukovych in December of 2013 when they were there in Kiev. And he sort of suggests or like gives the impression that there was like this good cop, bad cop routine going on or like they weren't making it clear to Yanukovych that they were attempting to oust him, but they were doing like a um, dangling carrots and sticks over him and like playing this whole game where he was sort of, you know, teetering on the edge of maybe losing power, but maybe not. Like it all depended how he would, if he could sufficiently supplicate the U.S. Yeah. Now I'm not sure. I mean, you, you're, I think you're more, abreast of like the full details of this history than I am. And I know, I think I know a fair amount, but I'm not particularly wedded to the term coup um, because uh-uh. like I could see how my, some people might think, oh, well, I mean, I was protesting genuinely in the square and the United States wasn't like funding me or backing me. And I think I thought of it as an organic thing. I mean, you can imagine people genuinely having that. I just mean, coup. Right? I just mean coup in that he was, the president was elected to a five-year term. And before yeah. that term was over, he was ousted. Uh, and he was ousted in a way that did not meet Ukrainian law. Um, yeah. he, he was out and he was forced out under the threat of violence, I think. And so I, I call that a coup, but you know, whatever. Look, I, I'm happy to use Murphy's term, which is the An change ouster. in regime, the change in regime. <laughs> there yeah. was a change in regime. And, uh, but look, what, what's, what's also interesting about this clip is that the callers who call into C-SPAN really, as you say, in your Twitter thread, hit the nail on the head. There are Most- several others too that I didn't even put into clips. Like I, okay, well, uh, I keep, uh, <laughs> repeating well, i mean well, these go, callers were on point i don't know yeah. what was in the water at like 8 30 a.m on a tuesday morning in february 2014 but you know they really had their stuff down let's well, take a look let's go to a couple yeah hey good morning thank you for taking my call sure all right uh you know my concern of being a child of the cold war is always uh, a threat from you know the east and uh i was concerned with how this moving forward could lead to some type of global conflict whenever we seem to have these elections that are monitored or the united states is involved or europe's involved it seems to eventually end with some type of violence um i was concerned with that violence escalating on a global scale between russia and the european union or with the united states involved in potential conflict between those two superpowers there certainly is um some concern uh, about what Russia is going to do over the course of the next uh, week or month. Um, I, I think it's irresponsible to talk about the potential for Russia to move some kind of offensive force into the Crimea, which is the um, the coastal region of Ukraine that has a Russian military base and a lot of the important ports. Um, that would be a a fundamental grave mistake on behalf of the Russians. And I think they they know uh, that that would essentially lead it to a descent to madness. Uh, so I don't worry that this is going to result in any kind of military confrontation between um, the U.S. and Europe and Russia. So great job, Murphy. Uh, yeah. But that Crystal caller ball. nailed it. That caller absolutely nailed it about the dangers. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, well, spot on from Chris Murphy, as <laughs> usual. I mean, it's a shame that I happen to just, again, find this clip randomly in a manic daze because 
presumably it could have been like used against him for stuff or at least to show that he doesn't have the foresight that maybe he would posture himself as having given he just got blatantly wrong like basic right predictions that you know were disproven within a matter of days i think but one thing to recall is that a few months after this point right after the you know so-called provisional government had been constituted murphy returns to kiev in june in a U.S. delegation to attend the inauguration of Poroshenko, who had been, you know, elected after there had been the, the power vacuum. And the U.S. delegation actually was urged to step out of their motorcade on the inauguration route and walk up to the presidential palace or the presidential residence and wave to the crowd as though they had been elected. Like it's what the U.S. president does when they're walking down, you know, Pennsylvania Avenue on January 20th, 20th they're greeting all their well-wishers and they're holding their wife's hand and, and, and so forth. That's what John McCain and Joe Biden did, along with Chris Murphy, when they made their grand return to Kiev just a few months later to look out on the fruits of their, their efforts. So, yeah, and you know, I mean, it's like a rogues gallery of people who were in this delegation. I mean, you could probably guess. Newland. Of course. Yep, Newland. Yeah. I mean, you you nailed it in a split second. This is why I love you, Aaron. <laughs> Another sort of surprising one that maybe people might not expect is Ron Johnson. Hmm, sure, yeah. Ron Johnson, the Republican senator from uh, Wisconsin, Wisconsin, who people might think is more like a you know, Trump-ish type view on this stuff now. He was real sort of fervently involved in Ukraine issues for quite some time. Yes, you know, at one of the hearings where Victoria Nuland uh, said that we will stop the Nord Stream 2 pipeline no matter what, yeah. Ron Johnson was, and we played this clip before, Ron Johnson was urging her to like make sure that everyone knows that we will stop Nord Stream 2 yeah. no matter what. He was very, very committed to that prospect. He's a total hawk. Yeah. And like I said, it culminated with after John McCain died in 2018, the Kiev City Council, literally, I mean, it's a perfect sort of culmination of what uh, Murphy did predict correctly in one of those. Clips. Murphy's law. Yeah. <laughs> Murphy's law is that if you go to some uh, geopolitical hotspot with John McCain, there's probably going to be some increase in the tumult. And then, you know, things will shake out. And ultimately, John McCain will get somehow get a street named after him post-mortem to honor his contributions and his, his legacy. And they had McCain, this McCain Avenue replace a the pre-existing avenue, which would have been named after some sort of a KGB spy, apparently, because um, so, they felt that that was extra symbolic. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I, mean, I think uh, when you point out this stuff now, I, I tend not to focus too much on, on the history because I think sometimes it's, a little bit overemphasized, not that it's insignificant, right? But I feel like sometimes that can get bogged down on, on when you're sort of debating more kind of acutely relevant contemporaneous issues involving, you know, the nature of escalatory U.S. policy and, and whatnot. Um, but, I mean, this does give a backdrop for that and adds a lot of context that like 99.9% of people who've consumed Ukraine-related news over the past year right. just have no idea... No, sure. Is even within the realm of possibility that could have happened. Like they would, yeah, it would just never course. have entered into their 
consciousness that a U.S. senator could have just stated bluntly and even sort of casually that, of course, I mean, why wouldn't the U.S. use all the kind of tools at its disposal to oust yeah, the Ukrainian president? Yeah. Well, let's go to now uh, what is being described as a split inside the Republican Party over Ukraine. And the latest uh, uh, vector for that controversy is Ron DeSantis, who you know is considered a front runner for the Republicans in 2024. And he recently made some comments that the U.S. shouldn't get further involved in what he called a territorial dispute between Russia and Ukraine. And that stoked outrage by war hawks uh, from both parties, including inside the Republican Party. So this is a clip from CNN, just a series of lawmakers denouncing Ron DeSantis for those comments. I think he's mistaken, and I hope he reconsiders. Um, but, but it is troubling, yes. I mean, could you see yourself supporting someone who has this kind of position? I, I would prefer to have a president that uh, understands that what happens in Europe vitally affects us. I think this is a much bigger issue than a territorial dispute. I can't imagine what Xi Jinping or or uh, the leadership in Iran would think if, if we took that course of action. Now, the challenge, though, for these Republicans is that a growing number of Republican voters, particularly in the Republican base, are skeptical of additional aid to Ukraine and also House Republicans aligning themselves with that skepticism, including... That was the Republican side. Let's take a look at the Democratic side and see what Claire McCaskill, former Senator Claire McCaskill, had to say. And I got to tell you, somebody told me before this whole thing started that Ron DeSantis would end up being besties with Jill Stein. I would say, no, I don't think that's going to happen. But as it turns out, he's, she's got, he's got Jill Stein and Marjorie Taylor Greene. So wait, by that logic, by the way, who is Claire McCaskill besties with? Like Mike Pompeo? Yeah, Roger Wicker. I mean, the first senator who, who they showed a clip of re- reacting to DeSantis, Roger Wicker, he seems very soft-spoken. And if that was his denunciation of DeSantis, it came across as actually rather gentle. But Roger Wicker is like one of the most just out-of-this-universe hawks, maybe in the whole Senate um, or even the whole Congress. I mean, he, he's somebody who's advocated for like preemptive U.S. strikes on Russian vessels in the Black Sea, even ahead of the invasion, um, to kind of wipe out their military capacity to even potentially initiate the the invasion. This was in December of 2021. And he has had other bright ideas to that effect off and on, you know, for as long as the conflict's gone on. And it's just, you know, so the idea that he's like some sober, serious, just restrained Mm -hmm. contrast with DeSantis is ridiculous. Um, but then the ridiculousness is compounded because this whole outrage was predicated on a fallacy in the first place. It was misreported right away. It's, you know, it's funny. The morning that the New York Times reported on DeSantis's statement, because the pri- previous night he had given a statement to Tucker Carlson, giving a short summation of his Ukraine position. And the, the New York Times misreported it right off the bat. And I know for a fact that that happened because one of the reporters decided to tweet at me out of the blue because I had done a little sort of write-up. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. And the most self-deprecating man in media showbiz, Michael (laughs) Tracy. That is wonderful. That's right. Yes, he is. Uh, And also very informed. Great to hear from him. And thank you, Michael, for 
coming in at the last minute to join us. Uh, I can't believe you just threw him under the bus like that. We're not going <laughs> to pretend he was our first pick forever and ever and ever. Yeah, we did uh, have a scheduling snafu, but Michael was on our list. We wanted to have him on anyway. And it all worked out. And it all so, worked out, yeah. Make sure you become subscribers at usefulidiots.substack.com or usefulidiots.locals.com because you'll not only get a very good extended interview with Michael Tracy where we go over TikTok, but you'll also get our wonderful Thursday throwdown, and uh, which is your midweek dose of media madness where we react to very uh, important, disturbing media clips. And this one's a really great one. We got some great uh, Thomas Friedman stuff that you won't want to watch alone. You'll definitely want us to, to walk you through it. So you can do that again at usefulidiots.substack.com, usefulidiots.locals.com. All right. Bye, everybody. See you next week. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.